Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert. Yes. I've got a scenario for you. Roll it at me. Imagine you are on a jury. Okay. So you have been picked. You're not one of the people who got sent home early. Okay. I normally get out of it. Yeah. But you're there on the jury, and you're hearing the trial of a man who ran amok in a bowling alley. And so he went nuts. He took his bowling shoes off. He started throwing bowling balls at people. And fortunately, no one was killed, but several people were seriously injured. Oh. And now this man is standing trial for his bowling ball rampage. And at trial, the man's attorney attempts to mount a defense based on the insanity plea. The claim that the accused did commit the acts in question, but is not responsible for his actions because his mental state prevents him from understanding them. Uh, and then the prosecution brings out an expert witness who is a highly respected and very confident-sounding forensic psychiatrist who testifies that he has interviewed the defendant and found that the defendant shows all the normal signs of a person in perfect command of his actions. But then the defense brings forth another highly respected and confident-sounding forensic psychiatrist who testifies exactly the opposite, that the defendant's symptoms are consistent with those of a person who is disconnected from reality and cannot tell right from wrong. If you have no psychiatric expertise yourself, how are you supposed to tell which one of these expert witnesses is correct? This is the problem that one uh, encounters with a number of these trials, right? Because it ultimately comes down to a who can either who can make the better case for sanity or insanity, or if they both kind of make equally pressing cases, then it comes down to something as simple as a as a, as a character judgment on the part uh, on, on your part of the accused. Yeah. Now, I might say that it's possibly true that this scenario I've come up with is kind of contrived. Uh, it might be worth saying that apparently less than 1% of defendants in U.S. cases plead insanity. And then for those that do enter such a plea, the rates of success are low. So pleading insanity typically doesn't get you very far in right. the U.S. legal system. But the example does raise a few questions about how we deal with concepts of mental uh, let's say mental normality and mental abnormality as, as the lay public understands them. Uh, throughout this episode, we're going to be using the words sane and insane to give a sense of the way that they're used in the milieu of the experiment we're going to talk about in this episode. But every time you hear those words, you should imagine that we're putting some huge big finger quotes around them, uh, because as we discuss at the end, these are probably not the most useful terms or concepts for describing or helping people in the real world. But they still are salient concepts to many people. Like if you take the average person and ask them if they think the difference between sane and insane is a real, actual thing and they can tell the difference, they'll say, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, we we encounter this all the time, right? The Just the basic idea that I'm here on this side of the wall and then there are people inside the hospital. There are people uh, receiving care. There are people that are incarcerated. That's the insane 
side of the wall. Yeah. And there's a barrier between us. It's kind of a, uh, a sneeches and star-bellied sneeches approach to mental health. Yeah. You can easily divide everybody into one of two categories, either those that have it all together and are seeing everything straight and have a, uh, an acceptable uh, understanding of reality, and then those who do not. Yeah, and so today we want to talk about a, a landmark experiment in the history of psychology, one that's been written about and talked about a lot for years, often celebrated, it's highly cited, and it concerns the question of how do we know precisely what constitutes normality or mental illness? And if there is a difference between sanity and insanity, can anybody tell the difference, even professionals? Yeah, especially professionals, uh, because this—I uh, mean—that's what this whole experiment hinges on—is is how do our professionals, how do our mental health professionals judge uh, and, and evaluate individuals that are entering the system? Yeah. So the experiment in question was carried out by the Stanford professor and psychologist David Rosenhan, mm-hmm. uh, who lived from 1929 to 2012. And I, I found this in an obituary of him that his education path seemed to me interestingly varied. So he got a BA in mathematics in 1951 from Yeshiva College, and then an, and then a master's in economics, hmm. and then a PhD in psychology from huh. Columbia. And then he went on to sort of branch into two different fields and work on unifying concepts between them. So he's a professor of law and of psychology. And according to his Stanford obituary, which I read, he he was sort of known for applying psychology to legal practices like jury selection and jury consultation. And uh, he held various honors during his lifetime, like being uh, the head of the APA and and stuff like that. So he was a very respected psychologist and jurist, one might say. But in 1973, Rosenhan published in the journal Science a piece that was titled On Being Sane in Insane Places. And it begins with this question that we talked about a minute ago. If sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? That's what he says. Yeah, he presents this uh, quite nicely. And as we were discussing prior to to the recording session here, uh, the the whole paper is just so well written and yeah. so accessible to uh to to the average lead, to the average reader it's not it's not uh you know lost in a bunch of psychobabble yeah you can find this paper online and i do highly recommend reading it as it is uh it is not just clear and very interesting it's a great piece of writing mm-hmm. but so rosenhan opens by pointing out the same thing we did at the beginning of our podcast he says that it's common in murder trials where the defendant's sanity is under dispute for perfectly respectable psychiatrists to testify in direct contradiction of one another about the mental state of the accused. And I actually went and and read a couple articles about what happens when somebody tries to enter an insanity plea in court, like how can the uh, the experts try to figure out whether they are faking it or not. Uh-huh. And there are various methods they have. But one of the things that struck me about the way that uh, forensic psychiatrists go about trying to evaluate the mental state of, of a person accused of a crime is they're trying to see if the person fits a known diagnosis. Uh, so th- they're trying to say, here are the known symptoms of schizophrenia or here are the known symptoms of X known si- state of psychosis uh, as described in the literature and can the 
defendant match the description that I have here? And if they just present sort of like an odd collection of symptoms, it's generally ruled that they're probably faking, right? They're, they're, they're just putting together things that seem to them like they might qualify as crazy. Right. And uh, one of the, the, the big ones that often shows up is someone will be, uh, they'll be trying to defend the accused by saying that they are insane. And then the, uh, the prosecution will point out something, something in their actions that, uh, is clearly premeditated. Yeah. And, uh, uh, thus, uh, disputing any idea that this was just a spontaneous uh, manifestation. Oh, yeah. There are often various features of the crime itself that Mm -hmm. make it clear that the person was in a fairly lucid state when they committed it. Like if they try to destroy evidence and, and, you know, do smart, clear thinking uh, ways of avoiding responsibility for the crime. But anyway, to investigate this question, if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? Uh, David Rosenhan staged an experiment that's one of the most interesting I've ever come across in the history of psychology. And it was essentially an undercover sting operation mm-hmm. to determine what it takes to convince a mental health facility that a person is insane and then what it takes to convince them that that same person is sane. Indeed. So this took place between 1969 and 72. Yeah. So they're... they're as we'll discuss, uh, there are various uh, uh, locations that are in play here. Yeah. You have eight sane people, and uh, they're gained a secret admission to 12 different hospitals. So we're talking three women, five men. Um, one was a psychology graduate student in his 20s. The remaining seven were older and, quote, unquote, established. Yeah. So among them, you have three psychologists, a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, a painter, uh, and a housewife. And, uh, oh, and then also, uh, Rosen himself, Rosenhan himself is involved here too. Yeah, he was one of the mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. And the mental health professionals, uh, gave false professions in their biographies when they were describing themselves to the, these mental hospitals, basically for fear of being treated differently than other patients. And that makes sense to me because if, uh, if you want to know how the hospital treats, you know, the average person who walks up, you don't want to say, hi, I'm a psychiatrist. Right. You know, they might sort of be on their guard when they're dealing with you. And likewise, they went in under false names, as you might expect. Yes. Rosenhan himself was one of the patients, um, though he was not a fully clandestine one as the other one was, as the other people were. He Rosenhan himself was the first of these pseudo patients, as they're called. And his presence was, quote, known to the hospital administration and the chief psychologist and so far as he says, I can tell to them alone. So okay. he was known, but nobody else was known. And he was only known to a couple of people at the hospital and nobody else there. Yeah, there has to, I mean, obviously, you would have to have some sort of arrangement in play here. You can't just they couldn't have carried out this experiment yeah. by just doing cold, blind calls on various uh, institutions. Right. But no, nobody else was known to anybody. It right. was just him. And so the eight patients, they went to 12 different hospitals. So obviously some of them were admitted more than once. Mm-hmm. They went to 12 different hospitals in the sample, and they were trying to cover a broad range of the different kinds of mental facilities that you could go to. Uh, so they were in five different states on the east and west coast, and the hospitals were a varying condition. Some were old and shabby, as they said, and some were newer. Uh, they had different levels of funding, different patient-to-staff ratios, and only one of the 12 hospitals was a private hospital, and that made an interesting difference in how the diagnoses were treated later. 
But how did the so-called pseudo-patients get admission to the hospital? It was a pretty simple trick, and they all did exactly the same thing. Yeah, they all show up and uh, claim that they are hearing voices, that they're experiencing auditory hallucinations. Yes. Which, of course, is is, uh, is often a, a key symptom of schizophrenia. Right. And so when they were asked about what the voices said, the participant would say that the voice was an unfamiliar voice of the same sex as the pseudopatient and that they were generally difficult to understand, but that they had said the words, quote, empty, hollow, and thud. And I was like, wow, what an interesting combination of words. What would a psychiatrist make of that? But uh, Rosenhan explains that these words were chosen because they sort of went both ways. Number one, they formed an easy association with concepts of existential anxiety. Like you could imagine somebody having thoughts like, my life is empty. I'm so, you know, existence is so hollow. Should I kill myself and land on the floor with a thud? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they never said any of that explicitly. Just empty, hollow, and thud. Those were the only words. Empty, hollow, thud. That would be a, a great name for uh, like a 90s goth act. I oh, think. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I love it. That's a a tattoo already on somebody. But anyway, uh, they also picked these because this type of psychosis described in these terms did not match any in the medical literature at the time. So this didn't match an existing diagnosis that could be found. Okay, so it's a little more abstract than just... Whereas less on the nose as someone just showing up and saying, oh, I, well, I have this symptom, this symptom, and this symptom. And they go, oh, well, those symptoms are exactly what I have on the paper here. So more, it, it leaves the, uh, the individual making the diagnosis room for um, at least the illusion of discovery, right? Yeah. So as you would expect, the people who showed up at the hospitals faking these symptoms were immediately detected and sent home. Oh, no, wait. That's not the case. <laughs> In fact... All 12 times they were admitted to the hospitals Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, 11 out of the 12 times they were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And then, interestingly, one out of the 12 times they were diagnosed with manic depressive psychosis, which Rosenhan points out that uh, the manic depressive psychosis had, at least at the time, a more favorable prognosis than schizophrenia. So this was a condition that you were more likely to recover from. Things looked better for you, had a better outlook. And for whatever reason, this one different diagnosis, the better diagnosis, took place at the one private hospital in the study. Uh, But note that it's not necessarily a more accurate diagnosis because these people were all faking and all said the same thing. It's just the diagnosis that tended to turn out better for the patient. Okay. So this is adding possibly an interesting layer of class bias into what they found these hospitals behaved like. So they were admitted. They were put into these hospitals and then what did they do? Did they continue to pretend that, oh, I'm hearing these voices? No. The, the next step, of course, is to sort of straighten up and say, and uh, and resume their normal behavior, claim uh, that their symptoms are completely gone. But it's important to note they're not coming clean either. They're not saying, actually, surprise, this is all part of a study. Right. They're just saying, oh, I feel fine now. I'm not experiencing those uh, auditory hallucinations that I was talking about earlier. Right. They immediately resume normal behavior, claim their symptoms were entirely gone, and they were on their best behavior. So they were very good patients, uh, 
or at least they, they tried to be, and they self-reported that they were good patients. They were described by the nursing reports kept at the facilities as, quote, friendly, cooperative, and exhibited no abnormal indications. So uh, according to the reports, they, they didn't do anything weird or disruptive. Uh, they, they seemed perfectly well-behaved and normal. But nobody caught on. Well, maybe not nobody. <laughs> None of the people who should have caught on caught on. The the hospital staff uh, and psychologists, psychiatrists, the attendants, the nurses, nobody caught on to the fact that these people were faking. But some of the other patients did. In fact, that was fairly common. So during the course of the uh, of three different hospitalization records, Participants recorded that out of 118 fellow patients on the admissions ward, 35 of them, quote, voiced their suspicions somewhat vigorously. You're not crazy. You're a journalist or a professor, referring to the continual note taking. (laughs) You're checking up on the hospital. So the other patients were detecting what was going on with these people, but the hospital staff was not. Huh. And that's fascinating. So how did the staff respond? They forced these pseudo-patients, uh, first of all, to admit to having a mental illness and uh, made them agree to take antipsychotic drugs as a condition of their release. So, yeah. so they said, okay, you're doing better. You're, you're, not, having, you're not experiencing these uh, auditory hallucinations anymore. Um, just sign this uh, and, uh, and then agree to this uh, particular uh, drug treatment and you can go on your way. Okay, so how long did that take? Was that just like two or three days before they did that? Uh, between, uh, let's see, well, the, the length of the hospital stays were between seven and fifty-two days, with so an s- average stay of ni- average stay of nineteen days. So, so yeah, this wasn't overnight. Yeah, a week confined yeah. to the hospital was the shortest. Yeah, somebody was in there for fifty-two days. In fact, that might have been Rosenhan himself. I'm not sure, but there was a point where he said, "I didn't know how long I was going to be in there, but I thought it'd be a few days. I didn't expect it to be two months." Yeah. Um, but yeah, an average stay of 19 days in the hospital with no symptoms whatsoever while they're there. And then a note on all of those antipsychotic drugs that they were required to take as a condition of their release. Um, the report says that the pseudo patients were administered more than 2,000 pills. It was like 2,100 pills over the course of this, including the drugs, uh, I, I don't even know if I'm not familiar with these. Elavil, Stelazine, Compazine, Thorazine, I know those, uh, to name a few of them. And then Rosenhan points out in this note that, quote, such a variety of medications should have been administered to patients presenting identical symptoms is itself worthy of note. Hmm. It kind of makes you wonder about the extent to which, at least at the time, some of the drugs prescribed for psychological diagnoses were... I don't know, perhaps somewhat arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they, they didn't take the pills. So uh, only two pills over the course of the entire experiment were swallowed. The rest they pocketed, deposited in the toilet. And then they also said that they noticed some of the real patients doing the same thing. Ah, uh, yeah. Because, I mean, I, I imagine they had to actually consume two of them in order to set the precedent that they were taking them, because that's because that's a common reaction to being uh, administered all these pills, right? That you're well, going to start start refusing to take them or secret them away. Yeah, well, at least they, uh, for whoever took those two pills, I guess. I mean, uh, the fact that they could get away with not taking the pills for so long, mm-hmm. I mean, almost nobody took the pills, Yeah, and they, they didn't get caught. I, I think that's 
interesting. Also key to the experiment, of course, that they're not taking all these pills uh, and then because then you would have to factor in, well, to what ex- effect is this massive drug intake affecting their uh, behavior and therefore uh, their reception uh, by the staff? Right. So you had all these diagnoses. You had these schizophrenia diagnoses. But then people, they reported their symptoms were gone and eventually were released, though sometimes after a kind of long stay in the hospital that I that I know in many cases was not pleasant for these people. Yeah, and they were all diagnosed with schizophrenia, quote, in remission, before their release. And this is a really key point because Rosenhan's careful to point out the distinction between in remission and sane. Mm-hmm. It's suggesting sort of the categorization of schizophrenia in remission retains a level of categorical stigma that's associated with the fact that the patient is still considered fundamentally an insane person. They're just not showing symptoms right now. Like once you have been deemed insane, it, it almost seems as if the hospital will not consider you sane again. Yeah, it's 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 as if it's affected your sort of baseline sanity score. Yeah, and that it's it's forever going to be a little lower, no matter what your particular uh, manifestation level is going to be. Yeah. Though then again, I mean, even that might be more progressive than what was actually displayed in practice in the hospital because a. Uh, I don't know. It seems kind of cruel to think of sanity on a like sliding scale of numbers, like a like a D one hundred roll. Yeah. But what we have here doesn't even seem like the sliding scale. You're just either in the club or you're not. You're in the normal sane person club, or you are outside that club, and you don't get to get in. Yeah. You either have the star or you don't. Now, I do want to mention as well that that uh, in in the paper, uh, Rosenhan also comments on the conditions. Uh, that that they encountered, and then he yeah. himself encountered. Uh, this is a huge while part of hospitals. the paper. Yeah, just talking about like the language that was used, the attitude that was used uh, uh, against uh, the patients, as well as just the feeling of powerlessness that uh, that that he felt uh, inside these institutions, and uh, and therefore the ramifications that 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 those conditions would have upon any individual that's placed in their care, uh, especially someone who might have some level of, of actual mental illness. But one of the main takeaways of this, at least the, the first half of this experiment, and we'll get to the very interesting second half in a moment, um, is what they called, called the uniform failure to recognize sanity. And Rosenhan points out in the paper that that shouldn't be attributed to these just being like bad hospitals because they went for a whole range of them. They went, mm-hmm. from, you know, they they went to some shabby hospitals, but then also to some very nice hospitals. And it just seemed like, you know, once you were there and you presented a few symptoms, they said, OK, yes, you are insane. You know, uh, given all of this, I can imagine if I was running a hospital uh, at the time, uh of Rosenhan's experiment, uh, I would I would respond with, well, you know what? That could never th- happen here. That could never happen here. It's one thing for these <laughs> other institutions to to fail to, to to see through this scheme and to properly diagnose these pseudo patients, but you try that mess with me, buddy, and I'm going to spot your pseudo patients and kick them right out the door. Give me your best shot. And in fact, there is a, there was one hospital that did exactly that. <laughs> there was a hospital administration that took issue with Rosenhan's findings, and they they put a challenge to him. They were like, "Okay, okay, hold on a second. You send us your pseudo patients, and we will root them out." And what did Rosenhan do? Yeah, he agreed. He yeah, uh, so he, he said, said, "I'll send you." He said, "I'll send them. I'll send them on." Be it. Be on your guard. And so they were on their guard. 
In the following weeks, out of 193 new patients, uh, the, the staff identified 41 as potential pseudopatients, with 23 receiving uh, suspicion from at least one psychiatrist, and 19 of these receiving suspicion from one psychiatrist and one other staff member. So they were... Yeah. They, again, they they upped their security. They were ready for it, they and they were pointing out pseudo patients left and right, calling out of the woodwork. Yeah. Uh, so, how many did Rosenhan actually send? Zero. <laughs> he sent nobody. That's right. So this is interesting because now we have two different types of classical errors that are being attributed to uh, psychiatric diagnosis in these hospitals. We have the type 2 error, which is the false positive. Mm-hmm. You have somebody who comes in, uh, fakes a very simple simple symptom, resumes normal behavior, and is not detected as a sane person. So that's a, that's a false positive identification of mental illness. Right. Then in the second half, we've got tons of false negatives. People showing up with actual complaints saying, I, I have a mental illness, I need help. And the hospital saying, ah, you faker. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a game of werewolf where you don't have an individual with the werewolf role. Uh, and you just end up making accusations left and right. Okay, so w- what conclusions can we draw from this experiment? Now, remember, as we said, this was back in 1973, published in 73, took place between 69 and 72. So uh, it's not a direct commentary on, on the current day. Yeah. yeah. So this was back then, and, and we can at least hope that things are to some extent largely informed by the study better today. But at least back then, the takeaways were that the diagnostic process for distinguishing sanity and insanity is not reliable. It has shown massive errors, just complete failure to identify uh, correctly people's mental state going both ways, the type 1 error and the type 2 error. Uh, The other takeaway that I sort of get from this is that sane and insane do not seem to be helpful designations to begin with, but rather they're sort of arbitrary and likely harmful ones. They, they might be a completely artificial distinction. Now, that doesn't mean that mental illness isn't real and that you can't experience, you know, true suffering and symptoms from uh, afflictions that affect the mind and the psyche. These are definitely real things, and that's acknowledged by Rosenhan in the study. Mm-hmm. But it's more that these catch-all categories that fundamentally designate a person as sane or insane just don't make sense and they don't really work. So I think the study provides a powerful example of why it might be best to find different ways of talking about mental illness. Thus, some, you know, saying like Ted has a mental illness rather than Ted is a mentally ill person. Yeah. And this is very much uh, an an issue still today, just in our our attempts to try and talk about uh, mental illness and deal with it. And, of course, this has been in the news uh, a lot recently uh, in response to uh, the gun violence in America. Totally. I know what you mean. Uh, Whenever there's another mass shooting in America, one of the narratives that pops up in the media is whether or not we need to do something, in quotes, do something about mental illness to stop things like this from happening. Now, I think there probably are a lot of ways we could improve how we treat and care for people with mental illnesses, but I think sometimes I worry that a subset of the people advocating this narrative of do something about mental illness are less focused on specific ways we could improve treatment and more focused on, in a kind of vague and general way, just increasing stigma even more. 
which is unfounded. I mean, most people who have a mental illness of one kind or another are not dangerous and do not commit acts of violence. But it's just this idea that, you know, that having a mental illness makes you sort of a tainted person. You're just automatically suspect. Right. And that's certainly uh, a major theme in Rosenhan's experiment. Yes, absolutely. The the third main takeaway that I wanted to introduce was, uh, and I want to just quote Rosenhan's own words because I can't put it any better, quote, Having once been labeled schizophrenic, there is nothing the pseudo-patient can do to overcome the tag. The tag profoundly colors others' perceptions of him and his behavior. Uh, So instead of observing a person's behaviors to determine mental illness, the observers use the diagnosis of mental illness to interpret the behaviors. So the context seems to rule how observations of behavior are interpreted. Sitting in a coffee shop writing in a journal is considered by most people normal behavior. Sitting in a mental institution with a diagnosis of schizophrenia writing in a journal is considered pathological writing behavior. Hmm. The behavior is the same, but they're using the diagnosis to de- to interpret the meaning of what the person's actions are. And the same thing is reported by Rosenhan in some of the therapy sessions and the notes that were taken on those. So a person can talk about the relationships in their life and say, um, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I rarely argue. Every now and then we get angry with one another, but uh, most of the time we have a very loving relationship. Okay, so that sounds perfectly normal. But if you're trying to look at this with a kind of... Uh, with an eye for instability and, mm-hmm. and, you know, problems in one's personal life, you can just latch on to the part where you said, well, every now and then we get angry and argue and say, you know, has issues with angry arguments at home. Yeah. And that becomes a part of this psychological diagnosis. I mean, everybody gets angry with people that they love every now and then. It happens, it's totally normal. Now to, to, to put this in a certain, uh, in the, in the framework of the time and sort of in the timeline of American uh, um, psychiatric care, uh, I found this pretty helpful. So uh, according to American psychiatrist Alan Francis, who was a chair on the task force that created the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistics Manual 4, or the DSM-4, um, in 1994, uh, he said that the predominant post-war, post-World War II model in psychiatry was psychoanalytic, with an extremely confident focus on treatment. So if it's out there, we can treat it, and we can treat it well. That was kind of, according to uh, to Francis, that was... We know what we're doing here. Step back. Yeah, Yeah. let the professionals handle it. The institutions can handle it. But then, of course, came Rosenhan's experiment, and uh, along with some other revelations, it really... uh, took the wind out of everyone's sails, right? Exposing the unreliability of psychiatric diagnosis. And I can imagine if you worked in the field of psychiatry or psychology at the time, this would come as a huge blow to you. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, in his book, uh, Saving Normal, an insider's revolt against out-of-controlled psychiatric diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life, Francis writes that before 1980s DSM-3, which... Very much comes, previous edition, yeah, but but still comes after Rosenhan's experiments. Yeah, um, he said that psychiatry was quote pure art form, something brilliant, sometimes brilliant, usually idiosyncratic, and always chaotic. Yeah, I mean, I, I have heard this charge before, uh, and I I don't want to make judgments against psychiatry or psychology. I mean, I I don't have any relevant expertise that can 
let me stand in judgment of them, but I've definitely heard people make the accusation that in some ways, especially historically, psychology is more of an art than a science. I could see where one could make a, a case for that. Yeah, and then, of course, another feature of it is that seemingly at this time, at least, there is a lot that it seems to grow out of an expert's intuitions, you know? Yeah. Like that uh, you can't – it's difficult to do very accurate, unbiased, quantitative measurements of a person's psychological state. Right. So you – I mean, I guess you can derive sort of standard batteries like of, of questionnaires and, and psychological tests – but still in the field, I think you're going to have a lot of intuition coming into play. You're having an expert who knows something about the field, has read the medical literature, knows what the standard diagnoses and the descriptions of them are, and then sort of looks at what he or she sees and gets a, a feeling or intuition about what's going on here. Though yeah. then, then again, I think you could probably also say sometimes medical doctors, you know, somatic illness doctors would do the same thing. Say, you know, I'm just kind of looking at your symptoms and getting a feel for the fact that you probably just have some virus infection, viral infection of the upper respiratory system. Well, you know, that actually leads me to one of the big criticisms that was leveled against uh, Rosenhan's experiment at the time. Um, and uh, and uh, one of the individuals doing this was a Columbia uh, psychiatrist and DSM-3 chair, uh, Robert Spitzer. Uh, and that is that... Um, Psy- uh, psychiatric diagnosis relies on the patient honestly reporting what they feel. And uh, Rosenhan's experiment would seem to bend if not break that, right? Because each pseudo-patient story is is a lie. And, and let's not forget that a healthy person can still enter a hospital emergency room, complain of non-existent pain, and receive treatment. That might be an, uh, a useful criticism, but then again, I think a lot of the point of Rosenhan's experiment was about the hospital not catching on over right. time. Uh, so I can maybe understand the original admission to the hospital, especially if the hospital is strapped for time, they can't spend a lot of time with the patient. Um but they didn't have complex, fake psychological personas that were designed cleverly to trick the psychologist. They just said empty, hollow thud, heard a voice, said it, that's it. They get in, and then they completely, all symptoms went away, normal behavior, and then they couldn't get out for a long time. Yeah, and, and to your point, they're judging the individual who is no longer claiming to have any kind of uh, auditory hallucinations they are diagnosing them as something other than sane. Yes, absolutely. And again, playing on that uh, that really problematic distinction, the overall categorical distinction between sane and insane. But I think this is a really strong indication that it is not good for us to use these categories of sane person and insane person. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a fact I want to mention is that according to the U.S. National Institute of Mental Health, in 2013, there were an estimated 43.8 million adults aged 18 or older in the United States with any mental illness. So that's just any mental illness of all the kinds recognized in the past year. And this represented 18.5% of all U.S. adults. Hmm. So there, there's a huge chunk of people in any given country, but uh, we have the stats here for the United States, that at any given time – 
will experience a mental illness, but this doesn't mean they've always had it. Right. It doesn't mean they always will have it. It doesn't mean they're a bad or suspect person for having it. I mean, we don't think that about people who have uh, illnesses of the body. We don't label somebody who has a somatic body illness as a sick person who right. th- from thereafter is known as a person who has been sick. Yeah, I mean, it's like we end up treating the human mind as this fixed state that is not susceptible to change and influence. Yeah, it's almost as if we're importing a kind of magical thinking there, too, like uh, that having a mental illness is in a very unfair way treated like being in a state of sin or being in uh having some kind of magical taint to you that makes people afraid of you. This is a thing that was described in the part of the report where Rosenhan talks about the conditions inside the hospital, which is a very also a very salient part of the report and, mm-hmm. and another great reason you should read it. But one of the things he talks about is the lack of contact between the staff and the patients. Like there's just really very little interaction and that sometimes it's as if people who don't claim to suffer from a mental illness were afraid that they could catch it hmm. by being near or interacting with the people who did have a mental illness. There was like a like an aversion uh, that drove them away, and this was partially explaining the the lack of interaction between the staff and the patients. Hmm. Yeah, and I can definitely imagine an unwillingness to yeah, to look at and think about this thing that we uh, often have uh, uh, an inability to talk about and to, to, to even uh, quantify in a in a meaningful sense. There was one last paragraph I wanted to read from Rosenhan's study because I just found it absolutely fascinating. I, I wonder what you th- thought about this, Robert, but let me read it first. The okay. quote is, conceivably, when the origins of and stimuli that give rise to a behavior are remote or unknown, or when the behavior strikes us as immutable, Trait labels regarding the behavior arise, the trait labels like insane that we were talking about, Uh, when, on the other hand, the origins and stimuli are known and available, discourse is limited to the behavior itself. Thus, I may hallucinate because I am sleeping, or I may hallucinate because I have ingested a peculiar drug. These are termed sleep-induced hallucinations or dreams or drug-induced hallucinations, respectively. But when the stimuli to my hallucinations are unknown, that is called craziness or schizophrenia, as if that inference were somehow as illuminating as the others. Huh. I I thought that was absolutely fascinating because it almost... uh, tracks this this problem we have in dealing with mental illness as a function of our lack of understanding like like we think we're very advanced or much more advanced than we used to be in fields like psychiatry and psychology because we're i guess we're a lot better than we used to be i mean we no longer think people have demons in them uh, we understand that that there are conditions that can affect the mind that can cause people suffering and distress or cause people abnormal behavior, and that there are hopefully physical or uh, or at least like you know talk based ways of treating those and helping get people get relief and and fix the problem that's affecting them. 
But we're still very imprecise with psychology, aren't we? I mean, it's not like in many ways of treating body illnesses where we've come up with extremely just laser targeted ways of fixing the problems that arise. If you get a broken bone, you know, you can get a, a surgery or a splint put on or, you know, there, there are ways of fixing it that we're pretty sure are going to work and aren't going to have too many weird side effects. Right. And you can do the same thing with, say, antibiotics or other, you know, drug treatments that we have for body illnesses. And there is just a fundamental lack of precision and lack of technological advancement we have in treating uh, illnesses that affect the mind. Yeah, and it, it definitely reminds me of content that uh, I've looked at in the past, just talking about like what is, in the same way we're talking about what is sane and what is insane, uh, and, and as flawed as those categories are. But then, you know, what is what is an actual experience of reality versus a skewed experience of reality? Sure. Especially when you start thinking of any human perception of reality is essentially flawed. It's imperfect. It's based. It's it's not. Uh, it's not one for one. You know. So. So how do you yeah, start? There is no objective. Yeah, know. there is no ob- ob- objective reality. All reality is a subjective reality, and uh, the individual on the other side of the glass, their experience of of subjective reality is just different. So then how do you treat it? How do you quantify it? Uh, you end up falling back on these false terms. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that point Rosenhan makes uh, still largely applies today, even though we may have come somewhere since uh, since the 1970s. We still are at this place where the fact that we don't understand the origins of of, a, of somebody's problem makes us treat it with less compassion than we should. Mm-hmm. And so if there's one takeaway from today's episode, try to ditch the concepts of sane and insane. And I know they're deeply ground into us, but I say do your best to chuck them out. I mean, when you encounter somebody who has a mental illness and has symptoms, think about what can be done to help the person's symptoms or their, or uh, alleviate the problems in their direct experience rather than saying this is an insane person. Yeah, or even as you just go about your daily life, it's so easy to fall into the, the mindset of just walking down the street and going, oh, that person's sane, that one's, that one's insane, that one's crazy, that one's crazy. That one maybe a little crazy. That one's sane, yeah. uh, but but again, that's just falling upon this 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 uh, this false dichotomy of uh, of mental experience. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's a very fascinating paper. I really highly recommend it. You can find it online. There are copies you can find mm-hmm. where you can read the whole text for we'll free. We'll make sure to link to it as well on the uh, the landing page for this episode. Yeah. So fantastic in the in the history of uh, of psychology and science, and really in the history of human empathy. I think. Yeah. All right. So, in the meantime, check us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes, uh, various videos, blog posts, links out to social media accounts like uh, Twitter and Facebook. We're Blow the Mind on both of those. And on Tumblr, we're Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And if you want to write us and let us know uh, your feedback about today's episode or what you thought about the, the topic of the categories of sanity and insanity and how we diagnose them, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 